Welcome to Fintech Insider Focus in association with Visa. Our once insular world of financial services is now a global phenomenon and there are people everywhere opening up new markets and discovering new challenges like never before. In this strand of Fintech Insider, we take a burning question from financial services across the globe and try and put it under the microscope with explainers, expert panels and in-depth interviews, all to bring the global community into focus. See what we did there. Now, this month, the question that we'll be getting our hands around is, can APAC's travel sector spur on its financial services one? Now, there's lots to unpack here, so let's give you a little bit of context before we get into it. Now, payments is very much the wind under the wings of the travel sector, and it's booming success in the past. From booking your flight and accommodation, logging your air miles, buying duty-free at the airport to pay for a beer at the poolside, financial services has been responsible for making all of these processes faster, smoother, and seamless enough that you don't even know that they're there. Now, prior to 2020, Asia Pacific held the largest regional crown for locations including Bangkok, Tokyo, Singapore, Kuala Lumpur, and Seoul, attracting tourists from across APAC and across the world who were spending in these countries boosting the tourism sector and those financial services providers actually enabling it as well. While I'm sure we don't really need to give you the context of the global pandemic, which grounded the travel and tourism industry from 2020 onwards, it's worth noting that the tight rules on quarantines and lockdowns, specifically in Asia Pacific, did have consequences for businesses who were catering to the vastly growing and vastly lucrative pre-pandemic markets. In fact, in 2021, we saw Asia-Pacific lose its largest regional travel market crown to the US as its post-pandemic recovery stalled compared to what was happening in the rest of the world. But adversity can often breed innovation, and the sector's financial services sector is looking to really bounce back now with pent-up demand for travel and a 507% increase in passengers carried in 2022, according to the Association of Asia-Pacific Airlines. So how will 2023 look for these people within the sector? And does the rallying financial services sector mean a market will be much healthier across APAC more generally? We'll get into all of this and much, much more after a few quick messages from Visa. Visa's FinTech Fast Track program is streamlining the onboarding process for FinTechs, enabling them to gain access to Visa's powerful capabilities and network. Visa and their enablement partners help FinTechs launch and scale cards, virtual credentials, and disbursement programs. To learn more, visit partner.visa.com. Welcome back to Fintech Insider Focus. We want to take this conversation a little bit wider, so we put together a panel of experts to really dig into the question, can APAC's travel sector spur on its financial services one? First off, we have my Fintech Insider co-host for this month's episodes, Matthew Wood, who is the head of digital and fintech partnerships in Asia Pacific at Visa. Matt, great to have you on for this one. How are you doing? Hey, David. Great to speak with you. Great to be with you. How are you? Pretty good, pretty good. I mean, a lot better than you. I'm, I understand it's currently, what is it, uh, half midnight, nearly one o'clock for you, where you are? I, I am indeed uh, sitting in the dark, doing my best to keep my eyes open, but absolutely excited to have this conversation with, with you and our, and our esteemed guests today as well. So ready to go. 
very much taking the one for the team. Uh, but can you tell us a little bit more about your your role at Visa then? It's a um, super interesting one in a really, really interesting region. Yeah, indeed. So um, my team and I are responsible for the work that we do uh, with our digital and fintech partners across the Asia-Pacific region. Um, and to put it really simply, David, we, we cover three things. So the first is um, we lead the partnerships that Visa has in place with our big global tech platforms. Um, the platforms where hundreds of millions of users congregate um, and where commerce and payments has become a really important part of their ecosystems. Uh, the second is we work with some of the Asia Pacific regions, really fast growing scale up fintech companies and we help them to grow and expand across the region uh, and in, in many cases globally as well. Um, and then thirdly, we work across the entire region. So from India to mainland China, down to New Zealand, um, and we support those kind of new and emerging fintechs, the ones who are just kind of getting started uh, and where commerce or payments is uh, a part of their value proposition or it could be part of their value proposition. So very simply, we, we seek to help them get moving really fast by getting them up and running on the Visa, net, uh, Visa network really quickly. Very, very cool. And uh, we'll be digging into that a little bit more as uh, as the conversation unfolds, because uh, super relevant to what we're going to be talking about today. Um, we're also joined by Cecilia Chu, who is the co-founder and CEO over at Utrip. Thanks for joining us, Cecilia. How are you doing today? Hi, David. Uh, really excited to be here uh, on this panel as well. Uh, it is 3.40 uh, p.m. Uh, Singapore time. It's almost uh, the best time zone for me. <laughs> well, it's good. I know we're going to make Matt feel like he's, uh, you know, really taking one for the team all the way through this one, aren't we? So, uh, but uh, uh, for anybody who doesn't know, tell us a little bit more about Utrip. Absolutely. Um, so I run a payments uh, platform based out of Singapore, uh, but we really serve the broader markets across Southeast Asia. Um, now we actually have two products. Uh, we obviously have a consumer product called Utrip. Uh, it is a multi-currency e-wallet that obviously comes with a travel card. Um, but we also have an SME product now called Ubis. Uh, it is one of the fastest growing corporate credit card uh, product in the market. Um, again, you know, I think the last uh, four years has been a very interesting time for us. A lot of ups and downs uh, that we've experienced as a business. Um, so today, uh, I'm super excited to be uh, sharing our experience and journey uh, with the audience. Very good. Welcome to the show. And last but by no means least, we have Matt Baxby, who is the Australian and APAC lead for Revolut. Welcome back to the show, Matt. How's things? Yeah, it's great, David. And yeah, thanks so much for the invitation to come and speak with you. No worries at all. Uh, if anybody doesn't know Revolut, I, I mean, like, they might be listening to Fintech Insider for the first time, you never know. But uh, what does a Revolut do? Yeah, I, I, was, I never quite know when to cut the story in because it, uh, it's not a long one, but it's, it's an amazing one in terms of, of growth. Revolut started uh, seven years ago, a uh, pretty simple idea, and that was you know a better way for people to send and spend their own money abroad. Um, so it gave, gave customers an opportunity to to uh, exchange foreign currency at the interbank rate with no hidden fees. Uh, but that was really just the start. It's it's grown across a whole bunch of different use cases. You know, the main verticals being, you know, the heritage around foreign exchange, but also payments uh, into wealth style products. And then, you know, a really exciting frontier for us is is lifestyle products, you know, for, you know helping helping our customers find better ways of, of uh, managing their money and, and living their daily life. So, yeah, I... I joined Revolut in February 2020. That firmly puts me in veteran status within uh, the company. Um, 
but uh, joined as the, the Australian CEO, really proud of the fact that Australia was uh, Revolut's first expansion market outside of the UK and Europe. And, you know, I was attracted to both the growth story, but also product innovation uh, and having an opportunity to kind of replicate that in the Australian market. So, yeah, it's been uh, three years, been over three years of a, a lot of fun, a lot of hard work, but uh, yeah, thoroughly enjoyed, enjoyed it. Very cool. Welcome to the show. I mean, that's pretty impressive. We're covering the UK, Singapore, Australia, and San Francisco time zones on this podcast. That's uh, blurry eyes uh, mostly all around at that point then. But uh, before we dive in, just a quick reminder uh, for all the listeners, the views and opinions of the panel are their own and don't necessarily reflect those of the companies that they're representing. Don't take anything as tax advice or investment advice is pretty much what we're saying. Do your own research, eh? Uh, and with that, let's get on with it. Uh, Matt Wood, maybe if we start with you, how do you guys at Visa intersect with the travel sector? Because, I mean, there's a, as far as Venn diagrams go, there is a great big bit in the middle, isn't there? Um, there is, and, and it's, it's a great question. And I guess the short answer to our sort of deep interest in this at the moment is because when it comes to payments across borders, things are still much, much harder than they need to be on the whole. And that's true for money movements and remittance and the like, um, or paying suppliers, that sort of thing. And it's also true for those, what we call card present or face-to-face -face payments that happen when we're traveling. So, you know, whenever you're talking about commerce spanning borders, uh, you inevitably run into challenges. And that's um, certainly the case, David, in, in a region like ours, Asia Pacific, where it's such a patchwork, aside from the different regulation that's at play across the region, you've also got different economies, um, and a mix of mature markets and, and emerging markets. You've got lots of currencies to contend with, and that brings challenges around, you know, things like FX. Um, you've still got lots of um, fragmentation with localized payment methods and lots of different form factors. So, you know, you often need to figure out when to dip or swipe or scan or tap. It um, can, uh, can be incredibly confusing. Uh, and all of that really means that those cross-border payment experiences are really not where they need to be still. So, you know, it's tricky for businesses, it, it, it can be tricky for consumers, um, but, but it can be improved. And, um, you know, we, we at Visa can play a really important role in providing that con connectivity across borders. Um, our network is global, it has that reach. We bring the, the rules and the standards to bear so that commerce can happen to a high degree of trust. Um, but we don't always control the user experience where the payment moment happens, and that's where our partners like Utrip uh, and, and Revolut come in, um, you know, to play a really big role in elevating that experience, um, taking out the friction, introducing greater transparency. Um, and, and that's particularly important now, you know, we're seeing travel really bouncing back. So, you know, of course, it's been a difficult few years during the pandemic. Um, last year, 2022 was something of a recovery year. You know, fortunately, we're, we're seeing that momentum really pleasingly accelerate into 2023 so far. And, and just for context for everyone uh, and for your listeners, we think that tourism in the Asia Pacific region will rebound to something approaching close to pre-pandemic levels, um, so 2019 levels, perhaps by around July this year, based on the data that we're seeing. So um, we're not there yet, but we are indeed getting closer. Very cool. I mean, it is a. It seems an obvious thing to to sort of say, or it seems an obvious thing to ask of like, why would APAC be strategic for Visa? But I mean, it's a very, very, very large region, isn't it? And and actually, the opportunities are are almost endless in uh, in that sense as well. 
Yeah, I mean, of course it is. It's, it's, a, it's a large region. It's a, it's a diverse region. You know, as on the whole, um, it's not only critical from a payment standpoint, but, you know, it's actually such a critical part of the global economy. And, and that's why payments in this region from a financial services standpoint, it's so critical to get it right. And that's why the role that, um, you know, that we're really trying to amplify, the role that like Revolut and Utrip can play, for instance, is so important. Taking the friction and that guesswork out of, managing currencies and bank accounts and payment methods and so on. But, you know, the travel sector in the region is recovering. There's a couple of threads to pull here, both from an Asia-Pacific lens. The first is that China's, you know, finally now opened up, right? And that's huge in this region as, as such a large source of tourism and, and business travel. It's not firing yet on all cylinders, but for sure, as, as capacity comes back, we'll see that accelerate. The second part is, despite some of the macro challenges higher interest rates and higher inflation and so on, saving rates are still at quite high levels. So that's going to continue to fuel this sort of revenge travel bounce back that, that, um, that we're seeing. Um, but bear in mind, um, the Asia-Pacific region is, is probably almost a full year behind, say, uh, North America or Europe in terms of travel recovery, uh, just simply based on the borders uh, opening up slower, right? So, um, you know, last year, as, as the rest of the world was bouncing back, um, it was still really tricky for us in this part of the world to get out. Um, we were certainly making it tough for people to, to come in and, and visit. And so as a, as a case in point, if you look at uh, uh, a, a, an example of Tokyo, in 2019, Tokyo was the ninth most popular destination globally based on, on visa data. But in 2022, let's call that the recovery year, uh, like I said, as the rest of the world was bouncing back, Tokyo's ranking fell from nine to 93. Um, so we're, we're, we're probably starting from a, a good yard behind. Um, but the, the positive to take away from what we're seeing is that, um, that, that there's a really swift bounce back. Places like Tokyo, um, Bali, Phuket, Sydney, Singapore, all those headline destinations in this region uh, are really bouncing back. Um, and, uh, you know, really good signs in terms of how the industry is holding up overall, despite a slower start. Uh, certainly slower than other regions in terms of recovery. Yeah. Maybe coming to you on that one, Cecilia. I mean, I was over for the Singapore FinTech Festival last year and uh, there was no shortage of people in the airport or shortage of people in Singapore. It was uh, definitely lots of people coming and going for for events. And But do you see a a, a big overlap then between the the worlds of travel and the worlds of financial services and the the facilitation of each other in that way? Yeah, I think, um, you know, uh, ever since uh, the middle of last year, like uh, what Matt has shared, uh, you know, we are really seeing the effect of uh, travel come back and the borders reopening uh, impact to actually start to kick in. And, uh, you know, I think we're looking into 2023 with a lot of optimism. I think there's still quite a few months to go, um, at least. What we see is once the border has actually started to reopen in Singapore and, you know, subsequently in Thailand and every other market of Southeast Asia, there's so much excitement uh, coming from the consumer. And what we saw in our platform is that, of course, the travel numbers have really started to explode it, uh, especially last year. But um, everything else is also going up, uh, whether it's general you know, shopping, offline, um, online e-commerce, uh, transportations, even dining. I think people are just really excited and happy. So I think uh, over the last couple of months and quarters, we have some good run, but uh, 2023 is looking good as well. Just on that, um, I think a really interesting point on what Cecilia mentioned there is actually we're seeing quite a subtle shift in the things that 
travelers are spending their money on pre and post pandemic. And I'm sure Matt and Cecilia will have examples of that as well. But what we're seeing in our data, for instance, is that um, food and beverage, um, so F&B spend is proportionally higher now than it was pre pandemic. So it feels like dining out and having those authentic local experiences seems to be a priority. Um, and as far as retail spend goes, this is quite interesting. We've actually seen a shift to bigger ticket purchase. So um, visitors to the AP region seemingly more inclined to kind of open the purse strings perhaps than they were pre-pandemic. So th there's definitely some behavior change, uh, change uh, settling in uh, as, as people are kind of taking to travel again with a vengeance. You can imagine it, can't you? Been, having been stuck inside for, for nearly two years or nearly three years, then uh, when people finally get the opportunity, they do it properly, I guess, don't they? Sorry, Cecilia, you're going to make a point. Yeah, so uh, I can also share a bit of a Southeast Asia perspective where uh, Forex really comes into play. So I remember in Q4 last year when uh, yen was uh, considered quite uh, cheap uh, and also euros as well. Um, I actually saw so many of our customers intentionally pre-exchange into that currency and actually fly out to that destination. Of course, you know, those are already popular destinations for tourism. But, uh, you know, I just saw the excitement and the propensity to spend, uh, like Matt said, uh, is really that pent-up demand for both consumption and uh, travel uh, that uh, really helped uh, the business uh, to revive, um, especially since uh, second half of last year. Yeah. And maybe, Matt, coming to you on, on the, the view from Australia then, I'll see, I mean, you guys... I mean, digital bank, you know, operating in, in a fully digital way, you know, being able to support your customers during that, that period of time wouldn't have probably have been a, a problem. You know, there's no just trundle into your branch, please, kind of uh, set up in, uh, in what you guys do. So, but how did you guys have to pivot really to, to support customers during that period? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I don't think anything brings focus like a kind of dramatic shock in the external environment. And for us, the most dramatic was the closing of borders, the overnight evaporation of international spend by travellers. And that, that, is, that was almost a seismic impact on us where our principal use case, the thing we were coming to market with in Australia, was foreign exchange and spending foreign currency abroad. So it really did force us to pivot. If, if, I, if I reflect back on some of the things we did, some of the things that were really important, I think anchoring back to why we're here, sort of staying true to the purpose. And in our case, you know, putting people um, in charge of their money, empowering them to, to really control their finances was one aspect. I think listening to customers, you know, I think, I think um, you know, at the time we had a, a growing customer base and that, that was a great insight into how they were feeling, what was most important to them. Because I think, again, through those dramatic shifts, staying relevant to what, you know, what matters to them is, is super important. And, and then the final uh, for us was having, having had a preconception of the way we were going to come to, to market in Australia um, we couldn't anchor to that because, you know, the reality was travel. No one really knew how long it was going to last for in terms of, of, of being, you know, closed borders and, and a real challenge. And as it played out, it, it, it was a long period. Um, so we had to sort of leave those things at the door and almost start with an open mind as to, you know, what was going to be important. We spent a lot of time looking at, at the trends and almost the short term but then what was going to be more enduring? And one of the enduring ones, our view, was there was going to be this sort of acceleration of digitization of 
Australians' lives, um, and that was going to continue. And we, and we saw that absolutely play out. I think you saw it in an increase in online transactions. So you know there was a whole there was a whole cohort of customers that probably had never shopped online, uh, may not have ever used international e-commerce. Were now you know eff- effectively you know, exposed to that. Uh, and, you know, as, as we've seen that play out, they're, they're not going back. That, that, that was a new way of experiencing retail and uh, and they like what they saw it, it rolling on. I think the other thing we saw was probably a function of consumers having a bit more dwell time, but really wanting to get in control of their finances. So, you know, increased demand for wealth products and investment, things like, you know, dabbling in cryptocurrencies or um, just just being able to be in a position to actually get on top of the things that they might not have uh, in a normal environment. And, and that you know, for us really accelerated us into the strategy, if anything. We had a roadmap, it's all very structured around 12 to 18 months of rolling features out um, that, uh, that you know, the business was going to develop o- over uh, to. I remember having a conversation with our founder that said, actually, we need to accelerate into this. It needs to happen quickly, set up war rooms, got the product teams uh, in London and locally, really focused on delivery and driving the feature set out that we knew would be relevant for the times. And, um, you know, that included five major feature launches, uh, things like a rewards shopping rewards feature, getting cryptocurrency trading live, junior accounts for kids under seven. Um, and some of the benefits we saw, I guess, you know, again, back to that point about being relevant uh, to the environment you're in relevant to your customers at the time. Uh, you know, one of our key measures was, you know, how frequently were our customers interacting with the, with the app. And, you know, we measure that not just monthly or weekly, but daily, how, how, you know, how engaged they are. And the, the function of, a function of some of the features we launched, we saw that kind of really climb, a positive kind of net benefit. And, and also, um, you know, seeing that we could still achieve good product market fit. You know, we're seeing a steady rate of growth in signups despite the challenges of COVID and that, that give us, gave us a lot of confidence. And it was then I can almost remember to the day when the government announced the easing of border restrictions. Uh, and it was almost like the primary use case for our product, particularly in Australia, but in, in the other markets we're in, Singapore, Japan, um, we, we saw that come back to the fore and almost all of our metrics accelerated, you know, 300% increase in international spend uh, over the months that followed there. And prob- probably one of the most satisfying things has been, you know, customers using the product for what it was intended for, um, and, and there's a broad range of uses, but particularly international travel and foreign exchange, using it when they travel, but then returning home and having experienced, a, 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 you know, a great online experience and, and seeing how easy it is to then see them use it domestically. And that, that's kind of a key part of our strategy, being, being relevant to them every day. And, you know, it's one of the reasons, you know, we're pursuing becoming a bank uh, locally is to be able to kind of offer even a broader range of services. Um, so yeah, I think I think in terms of the the pivot, I think COVID was incredibly challenging. But I think if I think of the benefits that came out of it, you know, a, a, 
you know, a sense of real resilience. Um, you know, I think we came out of the back end of it stronger, probably with a broader feature set than we thought we'd have. Uh, and, and most importantly, even more relevant to our customers and how they live their daily lives. So, uh, so yeah, as tough as it was, I think uh, having come through the other end of it, kind of feeling even more optimistic about the future. And, and, and Matt, with a, with a richer product set as well. And Cecilia, if I could throw it to you, if it's okay, because I know you've got a, fa- a fascinating story at Utrip in terms of um, how, in fact, your own product uh, development roadmap changed substantially just by watching how your consumers were using the platform during COVID in, in entirely unexpected ways, right? Yeah, so, um, yeah, I think what, uh, you know, Matt has just shared really uh, resonate with me. I think it's really about uh, staying relevant and, uh, you know, using uh, new features and new product to uh, continue to to stay relevant and important to our customers' lives. So, uh, you know, one, uh, of course, you know, when we were launched at a company about four and a half years ago, and that was around, you know, just 2019, you know, almost uh, the worst time to actually launch um, a travel-based company. And uh, once, uh, you know, once we entered 2020, uh, just at the beginning of the year, we, you know, lost a majority of our business uh, overnight. You know, like what Matt said, we, we don't know how long this uh, pandemic is going to last uh, and impact us. And um, so we really, you know, go back to really look at um, our consumer and, and the user data on our platform. And uh, something actually caught our interest during that time was we saw, well, the world stands to you and no one is traveling cross-border. We saw there are some uh, super users uh, who continuously maxing out the cards that we gave them. Um, and so we decided to actually give them a call. And when we got on a call with them, they actually held up a whole stack of cards. You know how in Singapore, the, the limits on each of the e-wallet was so low. And uh, they were screaming at us and, and say, hey, you know, how come, you know, your, your limit is so low and uh, I need to get all my friends and families and, and colleagues to apply for, for your cards and others' cards too. Every card, I assume, in the market. And um, basically, these are small business owners who really appreciated the FX advantage that we are giving them, uh, even when they are just stationed in Singapore, um, you know, when they want to make procurements, when they want to pay the gig workers uh, through Upwork and others, uh, you know, or, or even, you know, pay for digital advertising uh, like Google and Facebook and so forth. They find that uh, using these, um, you know, FX cards was so helpful to them. And so, um, that was really the turning point for us where we decided uh, to actually build a strong product in the SME segment. We felt that um, Utrip, while it's uh, interesting and uh, good enough perhaps for consumer uh, to spend cross-border, um, you know, when it comes to business, we just realized they have a whole new suite of um, additional requests and needs. Um, and so that's why we really uh, spent actually nine months to build UBIS uh, from scratch. And this is really a new product portfolio that we are super excited about. And uh, one that, uh, you know, we really hope to further expand between the uh, Southeast Asia region as well. Fantastic. It's, uh, it is amazing the opportunities that sort of spring out of this period, isn't it? Um, it feels like, um, you know, the, the region more broadly, I mean, the, the financial services sector for 
you know, each one of these countries is, is quite dramatically different on the other side of this, isn't it? And both in a, a positive way and a, and a negative way in some instances. I mean, Matt, the competitive landscape for you in Australia looks looks a little bit different coming out of the, the pandemic than it did going into it in terms of you know, challenges, 86-400, the changes with up and, you know, different things out of there. So, I mean, there are, there are positives and negatives, but what I kind of hear from both of you clearly, and this was an advantage before the pandemic, it's an advantage after the pandemic, is the adaptability and looking for opportunities. And it feels like when you're starting a business like you two have, the ability to have a great idea, whether it's, you know, a child accounts, Matt, like you referenced, or, you know, being able to ideate a new business unit, Cecilia, like you did, then, you know, taking ideas to customers and getting them in the market is is really like the secret sauce, right? But I guess a, a big part of that, though, is, is having you know, supportive regulators to allow those things to happen, right? Because, I mean, for a very long period of time, I mean, there would be no FinTech Insider podcast if the regulators weren't supportive of change, because what would we be talking about, quite frankly, you know? So, so I mean, Cecilia, in, in Singapore, you guys are, are pretty blessed with a, a very supportive regulatory system and, and regulators in that way as well. Yeah, absolutely true. I think, um, at least from what I uh, observe in uh, Singapore, I would say it's truly a very strong and collaborative uh, private-public partnership. Um, and uh, we really share a common goal and common vision to bring more um, options and alternatives to customers and really innovate for the good and benefit uh, for both consumers and businesses uh, in, in the market. So um, I, I really appreciate that uh, from what I see and uh, experience myself uh, you know, within uh, Singapore. Very cool. And and Matt, it, it feels like quite a, a similar approach in terms of the the initiatives we're seeing around payments, the initiatives we're seeing around data. You know, there's a, a lot of change in your ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely. And and broad, broadly, you know, we found it a very, very welcoming ecosystem as part of the reason Australia was selected as the first market that Revolut expanded to outside of uh, the UK and Europe. Um, so I think it, it helps. It's a familiar regulatory regime. A lot of the principles are, are are quite similar, um, but uh, you know, I think overall, you know, as, as you mentioned, the market structure in Australia is one where it's pretty heavily concentrated in favour of the major banks, the incumbents. More than eighty percent market share across most categories are held by them. Uh, so I think I think policymakers, regulators generally see the benefit of new entrants coming into the market, and uh, and you know, our experiences where. You know, additional choices offered, net net consumers are the beneficiaries of that. You know, take foreign exchange in Australia. You know, the ACCC did a report in in 2019 that that showed Australia was one of the most expensive markets in the Western world for remitting foreign currency. And uh, so, in a way, we were kind of welcome with open arms, given the core proposition. Uh, you know, made that more efficient for customers. It was easier to do; could happen instantly, and you know, at a at a fraction of uh, what others might charge. So, yeah, I think I think uh, policymakers, regulators see that broader context. I think there's clearly still a need to ensure that you know businesses coming in are robust. And if anything, through the environment we've been in, 
you know those business models are being pressure tested you know not 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 just from a a, a sense of is is there going to be demand for the product but is the capital going to be there you know do, do, do the unit economics stack up does the product market fit line up the right way and frankly i, I think that's a good thing I, I think uh you know it's it's really important that we're building for the for the medium term in the entrants that are coming in i think that's really important from a trust point of view with consumers as well uh so yeah there's a lot a lot of sort of ingredients that go into that but as i said i think we, we found it incredibly uh incredibly welcoming ecosystem for a new entrant and you know i think that's part of the reason we, we've continued to invest and, and and grow the business and grow the team and you know go after the the goals that we've had matt it's um it's always an interesting one i've i've always found this a real privilege in in the roles that i've done but with your role at visa you know looking across all of those different you know, countries in that region. I mean, seeing the different regulatory climates and the the different rule sets across them, it's it's like learning fifteen different languages and fifteen different sports all in the same way, isn't it? In order to uh, to navigate those things, but that's what keeps this amazingly interesting, isn't it? You know, the almost the the innovation and the evolution in all of these different countries, you know, leading to greater outcomes as as Matt refers to. So, I mean, it's a real privilege to be doing what you do right now. I imagine. Yeah, you're absolutely right, David. The other dimension to that is that many of our partners, in fact, I'd say most of our partners, uh, you know, looking at the Asia region, looking at multiple markets and how they can grow and scale across. Um, and and um, increasingly, you know, as we mentioned, sort of staring into that patchwork of different regulatory environments, different uh, competitive dynamics at play, um, looking to Visa to help sort of guide and steer them through that expansion and you know really to help sort of that best path of go to market and to help scale so it's a it's you know we're very mindful of the complexities we're very mindful that also we bring a whole heap of deep expertise in the payment space which covers not only the regulatory environment the competitive environment but also who are those you know where to partner and and where do you need to partner to succeed so we really sort of try and take an effort of um, linking arms with our partners and really sort of stewarding, like being a shepherd, if you like, in, in trying to help them grow on scale. And, and we, it's something we take very seriously. Very good, very good. I, I guess, um, look, we live in a very different world now. We're, we're all a little bit smarter than we were a few years ago. I mean, Cecilia, if you if you started your business today, I, I guess it would look quite different in that way, in the w- way that, as you say, Matt, you sort of had to had to pivot the business to, uh, to, to features that were maybe more relevant to, to the market as they were. But I mean, how different would it look now, Cecilia, if you did it today? Well, that's uh, such an interesting uh, hypothetical question. And, uh, you know, I would actually say that the company may not look uh, that different. Um, the reason is, you know, we truly love what we do. Um, we are really a team. We are really a company who loves travel, first of all. But we really appreciate and love the nuances and the complexity um, across the different cultures within Southeast Asia markets. I would say, um, you know, we will always have a travel theme to to what we do. And I think um, that would be something that we will even start now, uh, even if we uh, have uh, began the company at a different uh, point in time. Yeah. I mean, it's always the way, I guess, isn't it? Understanding what the beachhead is, understanding the ability to to solve a problem in the market that somebody else is not doing, that gives you the the springboards into solving other problems for people, doesn't it? So, I mean, it's the thing I, I always sort of stand back from, 
you know, whether it was HSBC or Standard Chartered or whoever, like nobody started with 85 different business units and 400 different products. You know, I mean, they they solved the real problem for people and had the ability to do more in that way, didn't they? But um, but I, I guess to that point, then, can you really be solely focused on on travel in this sector anymore? I mean, uh, Matt, back, Backspeed, do you think that is something that can be a you know, a niche in its own way? Or do you think actually you need to have much more of a broad uh, offering? Well, I'd say yes to both, which is uh, definitely hedging my bets. But I I think, um, you know, you know, Revolut has has pursued this strategy of having a single place for people to manage their entire financial life. So that naturally brings breadth to it. Um, that's why we've, you know, I think facilitated payments, focused in on FX, but also given people an ability to control their wealth and then lifestyle products uh, and the like. But like Cecilia, I, I think travel is such an exciting uh, vertical in a lot of ways. And, you know, if you if you look at kind of where the opportunity is, as Matt called out, there's this massive bounce back in capacity from the airlines, willingness of consumers to get back out there, almost counter the trend of, yeah, there's a cost of living crisis and uh, cost pressures and all the rest of it, but there's this, uh, you know, underlying consumer desire to get back out there and see the world and feeling like we'd lost a couple of years as a result. So like Cecilia, we're we're just incredibly optimistic about, um, you know, that that environment, those tailwinds. Uh, And the exciting thing is, you know, working out which bits of the of the business need to continue to, to develop and refine to, to take full advantage of that. You know, how do we position ourselves for that big kickback in uh, in demand that's coming? And and yeah, I think it's going to be an exciting few months in a lot of ways as as consumers start to think about the kind of European summer. We saw that trend last year. This step change from Q1 into Q2 and Q3. Uh, you know, I, I'm I'm fully expecting a repeat of that. I think as Matt called out, and you know, we we um, are beneficiaries of seeing some great data from Visa when they share their insights uh, with each of their partners. That all points to capacity coming back, and you know, the demand kind of kicking up. So, like Cecilia, I think we're incredibly excited about that opportunity. Well, one thing I'll just add on to that, uh, Matt, is one thing we see in terms of tracking the use of financial services products is that if 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 I'm using that product for travel and it's fulfilling my needs and I'm loving it, then there's a big hangover effect in terms of how I'll use that proposition elsewhere in other in other you know aspects of my financial needs. Um, and so I think it's, you know, almost like a little bit of a, a endorsement of your hedge in that initial answer, Matt, which was, you know, yes, but also, right? Um, and, and certainly what we're seeing is, um, you know, while travel may be the primary use case for some of these propositions, actually very quickly that sort of broadens out and, and moves very quickly into other things like everyday spend and, and other categories, which, which bodes well for the longevity of the product as well. Yeah, to- totally agree. I think I think it's one of the most validating parts of, of you know our offering is to see people use it for that fairly narrow case around travel and then come back and 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 use it more for their everyday life. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Definitely. Um, I mean, at the end of this podcast, like I feel like I need to go book a holiday. I don't know about you guys, but uh, like all this talk about travels making me want to uh, get out there. De- definitely, I've seen a a rise in more people that I know you know, booking holidays, getting out there, going and, as you say, trying to catch up on time. But equally, I'm seeing a lot of people move. You know, there's a lot of people moving from the UK to 
Australia or Europe or Singapore or wherever to to go and experience new things. And and as we said, I think repeatedly on this podcast, it's uh, almost people playing a, a little bit of catch up on the time that we lost. And uh, and that's probably a, a great place to to leave the podcast. But we could definitely pick on these subjects and talk about them for a lot longer. And no doubt we will in the future. But that does wrap up this edition of FinTech Insider Focus in association with Visa. Thank you so much for joining us, panel. Uh, where can people learn a little bit more about you? Uh, Matt Wood, let's start with you. Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn, search Matt Wood Visa and you'll find me. You can also find Visa's FinTech portal online. Uh, just Google Visa for FinTechs and it will take you right there. Very good. Cecilia, where can people learn a little bit more? Uh, please come to our website. Um, it is u.co, uh, www.you.co. Uh, we'd love to uh, get connected. Very good. Matt? Well, we're revolute.com. We're in 36 countries. We have uh, a site dedicated to each of those. So, you know, we'd love to see uh, see people come and visit us and also download the app from uh, both the App Store and Google Play as well. Very good. Uh, you can predominantly find me lurking on LinkedIn. So connect with me there. Feel free. Uh, thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe to the podcast and don't forget to leave us a review as it helps us make it better and also helps other people find the show as well. If you want to find out more on this discussion, look out for the next episode of FinTech Insider Focus in two weeks time. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.